DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Martin in Germany. On today's program, the tricky logistics of defending a NATO member from a Russian attack. The spy agency that's desperately seeking Putin critics. We will handle their offers of help with the discretion and professionalism for which my service is famed. Their secrets will always be safe with us. And Britain's new plan to stop small boat migrants gets the green light, but could the court still have the final say? The Court of Appeal have not said that removal to a third country is unlawful, but they do not consider Rwanda to be safe for refugees. Those stories and more coming up on the program. When NATO leaders last week rejected Ukraine's pleas for a speedy timetable for membership, they knew that allowing the country to join them now would almost certainly escalate the war with Russia. But as the transatlantic alliance prepares to expand to 32 members, with Sweden being the newest, leaders at their summit in Vilnius did approve plans intended to speed up the military response to any potential attack on allies. But before they can be rolled out, some experts say there's a lot of logistical homework to do first. As we hear from Terry Schultz in Brussels. Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg constantly reassures citizens of NATO countries their security is rock solid. NATO will protect every inch of allied territory. The new military blueprint approved in Vilnius reconfigures the way the alliance intends to defend itself in case of attack, the most thorough upgrade since the end of the Cold War. NATO has decided to station more forces and firepower in eight allies along its eastern flank. But if there were the need for backup from other parts of NATO territory... Obstacles abound. Retired U.S. Army General Ben Hodges has been warning about this for years. The inability to move fast enough is a signal to the Kremlin, uh, just like not having enough ammunition is a signal, or units not being ready to fight, not capable. All of these are are, uh, signals of a lack of preparedness. This is very dangerous. If the Russians can see that um, we could not get to let's say the Suwaki Corridor or the uh, Fokshan Gate down in Romania, as fast or faster than Russian Federation forces could get there. Hodges is an expert in military immobility from the years he was the U.S. commander in Europe, charged with ensuring American troops and their equipment could respond quickly to threats. He found they often couldn't due to too much red tape and too little transport capacity. You cannot even move a convoy across Germany without special permissions because to go from one Bundesland to the next Bundesland is there are extra steps. So uh, it's about rules and regulations as well as it is about uh, actual capacity. There's not enough rail cars and DB cargo, Deutsche Bahn cargo, to move more than one and a half armor brigades all over Europe simultaneously. Uh, That's nothing compared to what we would need. Lack of intergovernmental coordination has also proven to be a hindrance. Hodges recalls an incident in 2017 when U.S. paratroopers were dropped into Bulgaria during a training exercise. We discovered at the last minute that the Bulgarian uh, Ministry of Interior, responsible for their borders, were going to have officials out on the drop zone and expect to see the passport of every paratrooper as if they had just gotten off a Lufthansa flight. And uh, I was like, what? (laughs) 
But while bureaucracy and paperwork are things that could be quickly remedied, military mobility across Europe has much bigger problems that may take decades to fix, particularly in Eastern Europe. There are many tunnels which are too narrow for big tanks and bridges and roads that can't bear their weight. This has been known for many years and was identified as a key area where NATO and the European Union could and must work together as the EU manages regulations and has money to contribute. But after months of research, Mahai Kahaya of the European Policy Center found the hurdles to mobility remain shockingly high. Uh, definitely I was surprised given how many years has passed since military mobility became a priority at, at the EU level. Not much has happened. Just to give you an example, currently at the EU level, the objective is to reach maximum five working days to get permission to cross borders. That's quite a lot, right? Kehaya notes the massive infrastructure changes that would be required are very long-term projects, one of the reasons he suspects politicians may not be allocating money. It's a continuous process that takes years. So if we had started, I don't know, 15 years ago, now it would have been better. If we start now, we'll see important results maybe in 10 years. But General Hodges says while NATO's new military plans could be a big improvement because more resources are being stockpiled close to the Russian border, he says the momentous changes needed will not happen until the people in power really understand what threat the status quo is to European security. Terry Schultz, DW, Brussels. The Ukraine war was the main reason behind a rare public appearance by the head of Britain's foreign spy agency, MI6, in Prague this week. Sir Richard Moore, head of what is officially called the Secret Intelligence Service, chose the Czech capital for what was described as his only speech of 2023. In it, he called on Russians, appalled at Vladimir Putin's war against Ukraine, to offer their services to British intelligence, spoke of the enormous threat posed by China, and also addressed the challenges of AI. Rob Cameron went along to watch. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Your Excellencies, uh, Ministers... Uh, Sir Richard Moore, C in spook parlance, commencing what was a rare public appearance to a small audience gathered at the British Embassy in Prague, but broadcast live via a webcast for Politico Europe. ...services with whom we have an outstanding partnership. It was here, in this beautiful capital, almost exactly... It was a speech dominated, of course, by the largest conflict on the European continent since the Second World War. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine, he said, also had echoes of Moscow's brutal 1968 occupation of Czechoslovakia to stamp out naive attempts at reforming the country's socialist system. There were many Russians in 1968 who saw the moral travesty of what was being done here in Prague. They had no wish to be on the wrong side of history. And the bravest of them acted on their convictions by throwing in their lot with us as partners for freedom. There are many Russians today who are silently appalled by the sight of their armed forces pulverizing Ukrainian cities, expelling innocent families from their homes, and kidnapping thousands of children. They are watching in horror as their soldiers ravage a kindred country. They know in their hearts that Putin's case for attacking a fellow Slavic nation is fraudulent, a miasma of lies and fantasy. Sir Richard called on those disaffected Russians to come and work for him. As they witness the venality, 
infighting and sheer callous incompetence of their leaders, the human factor at its worst, many Russians are wrestling with the same dilemmas and the same tugs of conscience as their predecessors did in 1968. I invite them to do what others have already done this past 18 months and join hands with us. Our door is always open. We will handle their offers of help with the discretion and professionalism for which my service is famed. Their secrets will always be safe with us. And together, we will work to bring the bloodshed to an end. Sir Richard also touched on the impact of modern technology, both on his trade of spying and warfare. He said technology was moving at startling speed and said his own SIS officers were using AI to augment but not replace decision-making. But he also spoke at length at the enormous security challenges posed by China and its accumulation of huge amounts of data, often willingly provided by us in the West. For many here, such warnings are music to the ears. The Czech government has recently sought to push back against Chinese influence and has also sought closer ties with Taiwan, ignoring protests from Beijing. In the audience was Jakub Janda, the director of the Prague-based European Values Centre for Security Policy. The Czech Republic, together with Lithuania, we are the only two countries in Europe currently which are proactively building political relations with Taiwan, which is very unusual because most other Europeans are scared, of, scared to death of doing so because they are afraid of Chinese economic response. But at the same time, it's not only about building things with Taiwan or links with Taiwan, but uh, really about working hard domestically on how to decrease our dependencies on China in the economic and technological sector. And that's where the Czech government is slowly starting to talk about it. We have the president talking about it as well. That's good, but there's very little policy action yet. But so far, we do have at least political will here in Prague to actually start doing it on the governmental level. Indeed, as Sir Richard was speaking, pilots of an Airbus A350-900 operated by Taiwan's flag carrier China Airlines, were making their final pre-flight checks at Prague's Václav Havel Airport, ahead of the first direct service between Prague and Taipei. The head of the Czech Senate told reporters at the airport that the new twice-weekly route would advance the cause of democracy in both countries, perhaps somewhat overblown, but Czech-Taiwanese relations are blossoming as Beijing fumes. For DW, this is Rob Cameron in Prague. Britain's parliament on Monday approved a controversial plan to deter migrants without papers from landing on its shores. The illegal migration bill makes it an offence to try to apply for asylum if the claimant arrives through illegal routes, including via the English Channel from France. Last year, nearly 46,000 people travelled that way in small boats. The new legislation allows the UK government to deport these migrants to third countries, including Rwanda, leading to fierce criticism from human rights groups and even the United Nations. I asked Dr Joelle Grogan from the UK in a Changing Europe think tank if the UN is right to say that the law sets a dangerous precedent. It's very unusual for the UN to come out with any kind of condemnation of a national law from a very 
wealthy Western country, that's unusual in and of itself. But it was also their concern on other countries taking this as inspiration or precedent and doing the same thing. Um, we've certainly seen that kind of behavior in other countries. One thing to be aware of in international refugee law is the fact of removal to a third country is not in and of itself unlawful or it's not in and of itself a violation of rights. It's if the country that the individual is being removed to is itself unsafe. Right, so let's talk about these potential safe countries that are included in the law. To, to date, my understanding is that Britain only has an agreement with one of them, Rwanda. Isn't that right? Currently, while under the Act, they list 57 countries as safe. I should say 49 countries uh, for women, because eight countries in Africa are deemed safe only for men and not for women. But they have identified these 57 countries, majority of them are European, as being safe for removal. The reality is that in terms of third country removal, so it's not where you're sending an individual back to their home country, but to send them to a third country, an entirely different third country, is that the UK only has an agreement with Rwanda. And as of, well, right now, the Rwanda policy is unlawful. The Court of Appeal have said that Rwanda is itself not a safe country yet. What is important to underline in terms of that decision is the Court of Appeal have not said that removal to a third country is unlawful. They've said that it is and can be lawful, but they do not consider Rwanda to be safe for refugees. However, this is going to be going to the Supreme Court, and it is entirely possible that the Supreme Court could allow the appeal and decide against the Court of Appeal. They could follow the High Court. What we can see from the very different decisions that are being made at each level is how difficult this topic is. How do we decide a third country is safe for refugees? And what right of appeal will an asylum seeker have before being removed from the UK? The Illegal Migration Act removes the possibility for individuals to appeal or well, even to have their claim assessed. So it's not even a decision of whether or not to appeal for the decision going against them. It's not even having the opportunity to have a decision in the first place. The Act removes the possibility of claims being assessed at all. It also removes the possibility of settlement, of citizenship or re-entry. It removes legal claims to asylum by people arriving through irregular routes. The majority of people who are arriving via irregular routes through safe third countries, because the UK is an island, this means arriving via small boat, usually from France, is that there is no other safe route available to them right now. That this is the only way for a great majority of people who are trying to claim refugee status to arrive in the UK. And if an asylum seeker is moved to a third country, what impact does that have on their rights? For these individuals, it will mean that their claim to asylum is then assessed under the national law of that country. So the decision of whether or not they are a refugee will be decided by Rwanda under Rwandan law. This is one of the concerns that was voiced in the context of the ECHR or the European Convention on Human Rights. Essentially, if there is removal outside of the, the scope, outside of the jurisdiction, European Convention on Human Rights will no longer apply. 
And then finally, the government has thrown a great deal of time and money at this issue over the past few years, including paying tens of millions of pounds to France to step up patrols along their side of the coast. Anything to cut the numbers arriving by small boats. Do you think this new law will act as a deterrent? There is no research that supports the idea that a policy like this actually acts as a deterrent. There's actually quite a bit of research that says it is not a consideration for people when they come to the UK and seek refugee status. So the problem of this act is it creates quite a few practical challenges, especially where there is no safe third country and there is now a very significant challenge of finding housing. And this is why we're discussing RAF bases and barges off uh, certain coasts and ports. It creates a challenge for the government to provide housing where there is no place that a person can be removed to in a third country. Now, in the assessment of the cost of the policy, the government uh, said that this, this would reduce the costs, that often billions of pounds that this policy would reduce costs. But in order for that to be true, this policy would have to reduce net migration of irregular migrants or people claiming refugee status to the UK by about 37%. Dr. Joel Grogan there from the UK in a changing Europe think tank. Still to come on Inside Europe, Russia changes the law to make anything gay go away. And a reminder that DW reports by the minute on the latest news from across Europe. You can stay up to date by visiting our website, dw.com, or checking out DW Europe's social media pages. I'm Nick Martin in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Last week, Russian lawmakers passed a new bill that bans transgender Russians from getting gender reassignment surgery or changing their pronouns on official documents. This legislation is part of a larger crackdown on LGBTQ rights inside Russia. Just last December, Russia passed another law that bans any mention of LGBTQ issues in popular culture like novels or movies. As Levi Bridges reports, it's part of a regional crackdown on writers. The Russian novel Summer in a Pioneer Tie opens in an old, rundown summer camp in eastern Ukraine. The protagonist, a young man, recalls a summer he spent there as a teenager when he fell in love with a camp counselor. What starts as a summer camp romance between two teenage boys turns into a sprawling novel when the lovers improbably meet as adults. The two women who wrote the book originally posted it for free on a fan fiction website. And that might have been the end of it. But one of the authors, Yelena Malisova, says the book started going viral on Twitter and TikTok in 2018. Superfans even posted video homages on YouTube, like this one, where scenes from the Disney film The Lion King are dubbed over with voices impersonating characters from the novel. Oh 
The book was eventually acquired by an actual publisher and became a bestseller. Katarina Silvanova, the book's co-author, says the novel was a litmus test for Russia. She says after the novel came out, publishers started offering contracts to other Russian authors who write books with queer themes. But bookstores had to pull them off the shelves this year to comply with Russia's new anti-LGBTQ law, passed in December. Silvanova says even online book forums started deleting basic information about their novel, like plot summaries and reviews. The two women also started receiving some really scary threats online. So last year, they fled the country for safety. I feel like the people who threatened us did everything possible to ensure I'd be afraid to stay in Russia, says Melisova, the book's other author. They deprived me of my country and separated me from my family, she says. Their publisher quickly became the target of the government's first investigation into possible violations of the new law. Satanik Anastasian, the former editor-in-chief of the publishing house, says the way Russian lawmakers reacted to the novel, Summer in a Pioneer Tie, was way overblown. Because it's just a fairly innocent novel about first love. There were literally, like, no sex scenes in the book. The things that they hated, you can find them in any other, like, classical novel. Lolita as a classical Russian literature. It should be even more appalling for them, but that obviously meant that they just don't read books. To what extent do you think that the book Summer in a Pioneer Tie was the reason they passed this new law? Yeah, this book is 100% the reason for adopting this new law because the book became like the most read fiction book in Russia in 2022. Russian President Vladimir Putin has insinuated LGBTQ rights are connected to Satanism. Irina Roldugina, a historian of queer history, says Putin tells Russians that, historically, gay people never had a place in Russia. But she says that's not true, because the Bolsheviks actually abolished an anti-gay law from czarist times. So technically, Russia was the first major country to decriminalize homosexuality. But starting under Stalin, gay men were persecuted by the state. Rodolgina says that history obscures a fundamental part of the Russian character. Russians are not inherently homophobic people. Russian people just need information, and they do not have information on LGBTQ plus issues, because this kind of information is actually banned, right? So the information just cannot be spread. Russia's new anti-LGBTQ law is part of a regional trend of governments repressing writers. Hanna Komar is a poet and activist from nearby Belarus. She says Belarus's authoritarian government has closed writers' organizations and jailed dozens of authors to stop dissent. You know what tyranny is? It's not about like suppressing you physically, it's about suppressing your mind. So they don't want any free-thinking people who think critically, and that's what literature uh, helps you do, right? Think critically. But in Russia, even banned books have still had a huge impact on readers. Yelena Malisova, one of the authors of Summer in a Pioneer Tie, says readers outside of the LGBTQ plus community wrote her saying the novel widened their perspectives and changed their opinions. And that's exactly what a good book is supposed to do. Levi Bridges, DW. Always get fascinating stories from Russia and its closest neighbors 
from Levi here on Inside Europe. So to ensure you don't miss an episode, hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. In the next half hour, going without, why Europe's cost of living crisis could have long-lasting effects. Going all out, the female far-right politicians muddying the waters ahead of Spain's election this weekend. Would it be prudent for men to have witnesses during a sexual act? Perhaps they could draw up a legal document confirming the validity of the act. How do we confirm consent? Do you have to keep saying yes throughout the act? Perhaps we could have reappraisals every one minute or two. And going, going, gone. Why teens in Marseille are willing to carry out contract killings. Many of them are between 16 and 18 years old. They don't have police records, so they manage to pass beneath the law enforcement radar. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. A Wall Street Journal article inspired our next story with the headline, Europeans are getting poorer. We've all felt it, but I must say seeing it there at the top of an article made pretty hard reading. Inflation across the Eurozone hit a record high of 10.5% last October and remains elevated. Interest rates are rising, putting additional pressure on businesses and homeowners. And a big contributor to the cost of living crisis was the skyrocketing price we paid for energy last winter, exacerbated by Russia's war in Ukraine. All this came on top of an already ageing population, a lack of competitiveness compared to the rest of the world, and heavily indebted governments who had no option but to cut public spending over the previous decade. So just how bad have things got? I put this question to the author of the article, Tom Fairless, at the Wall Street Journal's Frankfurt Bureau. Yeah, it is striking. It's something that's sort of a slow burn over the last decade or two. And it's sort of come to a head during these two shocks, COVID and then Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the inflation. Since 2019, wages have fallen after adjusting for inflation in Germany, Italy and Spain by about 3% and maybe by 6% in Greece. Whereas this, if you do the same calculation in America, US wages have increased by about 6%. 
So there's been this sort of divergence. Places like Italy and Spain were not doing so well in the previous decade either, but Germany was. And so it's, it's really been a turnaround for Germany and to a lesser degree to France. And I mean, looks over a longer time period. This is something that I found quite striking is that in dollars, the Eurozone and US economies used to be about the same size 15 years ago. And now the US economy is about twice the size of the Eurozone. That's partly currency strengthening, but it's, it's just partly the fact that Eurozone has had very weak growth. And Tom, in your article, you gave a lot of real world examples from across Europe about how people, governments and businesses are being forced to cut back. Could you just share a few of those with us? I suppose the, the impact has been quite severe on food consumption. That's where you've seen real price increases over the last year or two. In France, I think the spending on food has fallen around 10%. You see it for classic goods like foie gras and red wine, people are consuming less. But in Germany, um, meat consumption is at a 30-year low, for example. The organic food industry seems to be in crisis. It was a big growth industry before COVID and the inflation. I was speaking to a, uh, an organic food salesman who said his orders were down 30% last year. And you have this trend towards discount food apps where you can buy food uh, close to its sell-by date on the same day and then go and collect it from the back of a truck. Um, I spoke to some people in Brussels, like teachers and nurses who are using these services regularly, and they say that that allows them to eat meat several times a week that they couldn't otherwise afford. Yeah, at the same time, Tom, a lot of these issues have been building up for the past decade or so. Aging population, lack of competitiveness, heavily indebted governments, and then this cost of living crisis coming on top. How much of this problem that Europe is experiencing was already baked in before inflation hit? I think um, a lot of it was, yeah. I think the ageing significantly more advanced in Europe than in America, and I think that has economic implications. So the average German, the median age is 48. In the US, it's 38. I think older people, if you've got an older population, they probably don't maybe need to work as long hours. Maybe they've already paid down their mortgage or they've got savings, their kids have left home. Maybe they physically are less able to work if they're in factories. And so they would rather work uh, shorter hours. And that translates into the spending power. And the unions, you see in Germany, the unions are now pushing for a four-day week. An aging population also has an impact probably on innovation. Perhaps older people are less willing to set up, you know, the next Google or the next um, Apple. I think that also kind of plays into the cultural side that maybe risk taking is less well regarded in Europe. And that might be important for the digital economy. I think after the Second World War, Europe caught up very quickly with America economically. But the digital uh, revolution and digital industries are different. And I, I think they probably need different types of skills and maybe much more risk taking. And that seems to be where Europe has struggled. Now, of course, the economic troubles of many European countries like Greece, Spain, Italy and Portugal have been well known for many years. I just wonder whether the cost of living crisis has made things a lot worse in these countries, because I was reading that Spain, for example, has got off quite lightly. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, during this particular crisis, it, it's unusual that you don't see such a sharp divide between Northern and Southern Europe as you have in, in the past during the, the debt crisis a decade ago, for instance. Actually, Germany seems to be struggling the most. One reason for that is that Germany is much more dependent on energy from Russia, or was much more dependent. Now it's managed to shift, but the new energy sources are expensive. And so that pushes up costs and, and kind of weighs on, on growth, especially for the large manufacturing sector in Germany. It's a problem. Whereas 
Southern Europe has benefited from these uh, EU investment programs that were, were resulted from COVID, sort of hundreds of billions of dollars being pumped into green energy and digital programs that are supporting growth. And then also you have this rebound in tourism now that's partly from other regions of the world coming to Europe um, that's supporting Spain and um, Italy. And then finally, Tom, inflation is coming down quite sharply now, but interest rates are going up. And when they talk about central banks putting up interest rates, that they tend to go up until something breaks. Could it be that Europe is in for even worse? It probably takes a year or two for the interest rates to filter through. And the central banks aren't done yet. They're still raising. I think the ECB is, is likely to raise rates this month and so is the Fed. And the Bank of England too. And as that happens, people will see that their incomes will, will shrink. And so they'll be able to spend less and the economy is going to slow. But I think more deeply, Europe does have some structural issues going forward. I think the reliance on exports is going to be a, a challenge in this new global environment where people are much more concerned about relying on other countries. Tax increases are, are likely because of this war in, in Ukraine. Governments are probably going to need to increase their defence budgets. The population is ageing and they're going to need to spend more and more on healthcare and pensions. Tom Fairless there from The Wall Street Journal. Now, one of the countries that has held up pretty well economically is Spain. While it was also hit by the cost of living crisis, the country posted economic growth of 5.5% last year, partly as a result of a post-COVID tourism boom. Despite this, left-wing Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez faces a major upset in elections this weekend as cost of living concerns linger. In the run-up to the polls, there's also been a fierce debate over women's rights. The extreme right-wing Vox Party has been accused by its opponents of not recognising violence against women because it prefers to use the more generic tag of gender violence. Vox is also strongly anti-abortion and it's been accused of wanting to reverse laws on LGBTQ rights. But many of these opinions have been voiced by female MPs from Vox, suggesting that women do play an important role within the party. From Madrid, Ashi Sharma has more. A debate in which one of Vox's top MPs, Carla Toscana, addresses Parliament and names a couple of male MPs in the chamber. You're both looking at me, she says, and perhaps I don't like the way you look at me. And then she continued. But you're lucky because I'm a sensible woman and an MP for Vox, which is why I'm not going to do anything. But if I was another kind of woman, I could report you for harassment or even for violation. And everyone would believe me because I'm a woman. And that's the law today. Toscana's remarks were against a law established in October 2022 that all sexual acts without explicit consent fall under rape. The law is called Only Yes is Yes. Making consent the central issue means women no longer have to prove they were attacked with violence or intimidation to be victims of rape, as was the case before. However, for the party that doesn't want to specify violence against a particular gender, this law has been a rag to a bull. Toscana worries about what happens to men who are innocent. Would it be prudent for men to have witnesses during a sexual act? Perhaps they could draw up a legal document confirming the validity of the act. 
What happens if a woman falsely accuses a man of violating her after having given consent, but then saying she changed her mind midway? So how do we confirm consent? Do you have to keep saying yes throughout the act? Perhaps we could have reappraisals every one minute or two. Should we also add other words that mean yes, such as carry on or more? Toscana's mockery is seen as evidence of Vox's anti-feminist nature. But it also points to the controversy of this law. One consequence that the government hadn't envisaged was that it also led to slightly lower sentences for some perpetrators. Yes, yes, it's amazing. We have 135 MPs here in Madrid. Elisa Vigil is a rising politician from the conservative Partido Popular. She says that Vox has been unfairly portrayed in the media and that the Spanish government's policies have done more damage to women's rights than anything Vox is proposing. I think Vox is a constitutional party and it's part of the right-wing movement we have in Spain and I don't think that they are going to make Spain having a lack of rights because they are in the government. And they are not that radical at all. They don't like the word gender, so it's okay, but uh, well, the public policies are there and they are guarantees for the citizens. So I don't think we need to uh, get worried because bugs, they don't want to call it that way. It's a name, it's a level. We have a penal code which <laughs> when you do that, you go to jail. Is We have a law right now, the only yes means yes law, that got rapists into the streets, which matters me as a woman. When they approved that law is that they reduced the sentences. So we had over a hundred people who got out of the jail because of that law. The seesaw debate in the campaign has been over rights. Left-wing parties have been keen to promote fear around Vox getting too close to the government. They rail against the party's policies on immigration, abortion, violence against women and voice concern that Vox wants to roll back laws on transgender and gay rights. In Parliament, Vox's MP Maria Ruiz Solas even directly accused the Spanish government of indoctrination. According to data, the alarming increase in cases of homosexuality and transsexuality in recent years is directly related to the indoctrination that you're subjecting minors to. Through suggestion and imitation, they're being directed to becoming something that they neither are nor want to be. And maybe they regret this for the rest of their lives. Saying this is not hatred. Tania Verge is the government minister of feminism and equality in Catalonia. Her party, Esquerra Republicana, may be on the left wing and so a natural opponent of Vox, but she worries that hearing women in Vox expressing these opinions has lulled female voters into a false sense of security about the extreme right. This is also part of the extreme right strategy and, and that's called um, femonationalism. They use the presence of women and they want to, to establish this facade of support for, for women to attack women's rights. It is an incoherent statement that it needs to be denounced. You cannot be defunding women's shelters. You cannot be attacking abortion rights and claim to be a party that defends women's rights, even if your public face is a woman. The election debate here in Spain has encompassed many topics. 
but perhaps more than any other election, immigration, women's rights, transgender and gay laws have been under most scrutiny. And that's because these are at the very core of Fox's philosophy. And as long as they remain a force in Spanish politics, these issues will stay in the forefront of political debate, election or not. Ashish Sharma, DW, Madrid. Staying in the Mediterranean now, the port city of Marseille, like so many others in France, was the theatre of several nights of vandalism, looting, arson and attacks against the police after the killing of a 17-year-old by a police officer in the Parisian suburb of Nanterre. But in Marseille, this violence comes in addition to the sharply rising number of fatal drug gang shootings, 23 since January, compared to 32 for the whole of last year. Police say many of these contract killings are being carried out by a new generation of hitmen who are not yet even out of their teens. This report from John Lawrenson in Marseille. Children kick a ball about in the Castellas neighbourhood, one where the police rarely come, and when they do, as if they were on a mission in enemy territory. At the base of a tower block, there's a prayer room with a metal grill pulled down shut. Last month, an 18-year-old man who'd been shot in the chest took refuge here. His assailants dragged him outside and shot him dead on the pavement. Just the latest in a long, long list of gangland killings, a number of which police believe were carried out by this man who, wearing a balaclava, posted a video of himself bragging about being a hired murderer that the French media extracted from the encrypted internet site Telegram. I'm going to do contract after contract. I'm going up to Paris to enjoy one there. On my mother's life, I swear, it's a real love. From his voice, you can hear he's young. In fact, he's 18, identified as Matteo F. by the police. He was arrested in April in Marseille as part of an investigation into the murder of three people, including boys of 15 and 16. Earlier this year, police in Paris arrested nine members of a gang who'd carried out a contract shooting there. The eldest was 26, the youngest 16. Mathieu Vallée is spokesman for the Independent Police Inspectors' Union. He says the new generation of French contract killers is very young. Many of them are between 16 and 18 years old. They don't have police records, so they manage to pass beneath the law enforcement radar. Their recruiters are often based abroad in North Africa, Saudi Arabia or Dubai. They give them their targets and once they receive a film of the victim proving the job has been done, pay them between 20 and 40,000 euros per murder. What is particularly worrying is that there is a lot of collateral damage because these new hitmen have little experience of the weapons of war they use. Kalashnikov automatic rifles most of the time. Out in the streets of Marseille, the degree of concern, fear even, is high. We're not safe because whenever we go out, there's a chance of being hit by a stray bullet. Not long ago, I bumped into a bunch of young men wearing balaclavas. It was the center of town in the middle of the day. I think they were waiting to attack someone. They said, what are you doing here? Get lost. I thought they were going to hit me. 
The following day, I read there's been another contract killing in Marseille. We've got to a point where not even the police have authority. We don't feel safe anymore. And many Marseille people I know are thinking about leaving. Of course they are. Marseille was, from the 1930s to the 1970s, the centre of the biggest narcotics smuggling network in the world that inspired the film of the same name. The French connection. It supplied the United States with morphine shipped from French Indochina, French Syria and Turkey to Marseille, where it was refined into heroin and shipped on to America. Organised crime expert Thierry Colombier says contract killers have always existed, but they were very different. They were competent in the use of firearms, for example. They were extremely careful and knew how to avoid getting caught. The new generation is much younger, 16 or 17, and they are drawn to this world because they reproduce what they see around them and above all because they imitate what they see on social media and video games and in the cinema. There is no longer a frontier between the virtual and the real. Video games and films such as Hitman. There is also now much more at stake, Colombier says. Some 4,000 established drugs sales points in France, whereas 20 years ago there were none. French narcotics is a 4 billion euro business, he says, by far the largest in Europe. Back in that street where I was talking to passers-by, a street cleaner on the other side of the road calls over and asks who I work for. I wander over to talk to him. We talk for a while. He doesn't tell me straight away. Then he says this. I lost my brother a month ago. He was sitting in a snack bar in the Busrin neighborhood and was hit in the chest by a stray bullet. Shot dead. He was 63 years old. He gives me his solutions, the same as everyone else's I meet on this street. More police, the army maybe, harsher sentencing. But he doesn't believe it'll happen. The government doesn't really care, he says, getting back to work, picking up litter from the streets where his brother's killer is still very probably at large. John Lawrenson, DW, Marseille. Still to come, why Scotland is culling large numbers of red deer. And a reminder that you're welcome to message us with your thoughts on any of our reports. Drop a line to insideeurope at dw.com and we'll be back in touch. This is Inside Europe and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. Finally today we head to the Scottish Highlands, where red deer are a local icon, one of the big five of Scottish wildlife viewing. The stag's antlers are also a prized trophy among hunters. 
but there is growing controversy in communities there over how to manage this species. Major growth in deer numbers in recent decades has resulted in increased environmental damage and an ecosystem out of balance. Richard Baines went to Glencoe in the heart of the Highlands to find out more. Glencoe is popular with tourists who marvel at a bagpiper in full Highland dress among these snow-capped mountains. They also hope to see red deer, whose stags are an icon of the Highlands. But last year, the conservation charity which owns Glencoe decided to severely cull deer numbers here to let woodland spread and other sensitive habitats recover. The impact of deer grazing on the landscape here is to suppress the woodland. You can see just behind us here lots of willow and uh, birch grazing. Now you can see how thick the the stalks are on these little... um, Yes, these these little bushes here. Yes. You can see how thick the stem is down here. This is a birch. And yet up here, everything's grazed off. Scott McCombie is the head ranger at the Glencoe National Nature Reserve which is owned by the conservation charity, the National Trust for Scotland. This has been years and years of of continually grazing, and all around us, here are these greyer ones, that's more willows, but they're the same. They're like bushes that have been cut with secateurs. Exactly. They're just continually suppressed here, so although they're in amongst the heather, the fact that they stick their head out above the heather, the deer just come along and, and chomp off the tops of them. The deer are a native species, of course, but a man-made imbalance has let numbers double in the past 50 years to 400,000. We shot out the last of the, the wolves from Scotland, what, the 1750s, I think. Uh, bears were gone long before that. So there are no natural predators to keep their numbers in check. So the, the only way that their numbers are managed is by us. After a deer count here last year showed that there were 17 deer per square kilometre on the National Trust estate, it was decided to reduce that to just three. Stuart Brooks is conservation director for the National Trust and he says paradoxically shooting a lot of deer can be good for them. They're animals of woodland. We can see the comparison between deer weights in Scotland compared to Europe. And, you know, in some instances, they're about 20% lighter in terms of body weight. And we do see deer starving on the hillside because there's no shelter and and there's nothing to eat. So I think there's going to be a transition from a situation where you've got large numbers of deer on the bare open hillsides to fewer deer, but healthier deer in a healthier, partly wooded environment. But the National Trust's neighbours are not happy with the decision. Professional deer stalkers manage deer on privately owned estates in the area. Their work's paid for by taking fee-paying hunters to shoot deer. And the stalkers are deeply worried by the trust's plans. So we'll need to be quiet now. There's deer just up in front of us, maybe 200 metres. If we can just sort of get up behind this knoll here, um, about 50 metres, and then we'll just crawl in over the top. Be just in perfect sort of shot distance. Mark Schoen is a stalker on one of the estates next to the National Trusts. If the NTS reduce those numbers as drastically as they're saying they're going to, then, you know, potentially for the estate I work on, we shoot 20 to 25 stags. We maybe go down to five stags. Can we justify keeping a stalker, a full-time stalker on for five stags a year?
Kirsty Thomas runs accommodation for hunters and her husband is a stalker. She pointed to wider impacts on the fragile local community. It'll certainly impact the hospitality side of the industry because people require accommodation to, to come and stay and, and stalk. But from a, a family side of, of things, it concerns me massively. We have young children who've been here for over a decade who have filled the local schools. If we're not here, our kids won't be here either. The National Trust insists there will be no crisis. It says by shooting deer all year round, which is a departure from traditional seasons, deer will be permanently frightened from its area and numbers outside its estate will be sustained. And reducing deer numbers has been endorsed by the Scottish Government itself, one of a string of recommendations from an in-depth report on the damage that deer do. Estates all over the Highlands work together in local deer management groups set up by the government to deal with such problems. The group covering the Glencoe area is trying to resolve this dispute. Right, so we're going to weigh the deer now. Fortunately, we have a witch. Tom Turnbull is a stalker and estate owner who processes the carcasses he shoots for sale as venison. He's also the chairman of the Countrywide Association of Deer Management Groups. There are more and more people who want to reduce deer numbers and that's in line with Scottish Government policy as well for the benefit of habitat and in light of the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis. But equally within deer management groups there are those people who want to and need to maintain an income and retain jobs from a sporting cull. But he has hope that these conflicts can be resolved. I am optimistic that we'll find a way through this. There are going to be challenges ahead, but as a stalker myself, you know, I think I'll be stalking in 20 years' time, taking people out on the hill. We may not be shooting quite as many deer, but I, I am optimistic. Richard Baines, 4DW in Glencoe, Scotland. A wonderful part of the world that I can't wait to visit. Now, as well as rebroadcasters around the world, Inside Europe continues to gain traction on podcast platforms. If you would be so good as to hit subscribe and give us a review, it will help promote our show to other listeners. This programme was produced by Helen Sini and sound engineer Gerd Georgi. And I'm Nick Martin. Thanks for tuning in. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany.